Welcome to You Talk Podcast, where you talk and we listen and learn. Welcome back. Today we are going to continue our conversation with Phyllis, and she's going to discuss how she embarked on a journey of healing to recover from some experiences that she had growing up. So at some point, I was seeking some type of spiritual group to practice with. And actually through my husband, he has always had an interest in meditation and in particular practicing Zen meditation. So we became involved with the local Zen center here and became very active and involved with the group. We even took our son to the group and taught him meditation techniques. We attended their meditation services. I don't know what else you would call it. And then I started to attend a a seven-day retreat twice a year. And it was very rigorous. And I would call it Buddhist boot camp. Oh, wow. That sounds intense. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, we would be awakened something like at, I don't know, 3.45 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, There would be a bunch of, you know, the women would be in this kind of dorm-like setting. And you had, from the time the bell was rung, you would have 15 minutes to go to the bathroom, splash water on your face, put on these what I call funky robes, Hmm. and run to the zendo. And they would open the zendo with a tea ceremony. Wait, what is a zendo? Uh, Zendo would be the place where you sit for your meditation. So like a little building? It was kind of more, here they had buildings and they had platforms, and you would sit Mm cross-legged on cushions. And by you know, you were timed, you know, you had to be there and wake yourself up, have some tea. And then we would go to a sutra hall setting where we would do these funky Japanese chants that um, if you didn't keep up with it, I mean, if you weren't in the moment doing the chants and you wandered off, you would get completely lost or offbeat with the rest of the group. And then after you did this chanting for about 20 minutes, then you would go back and then you would sit in meditation for a while. And I can't remember, but the idea was every moment of your time was scheduled. Hmm. And you had two half an hour breaks, one in the morning, after breakfast, after cleaning, whatever work assignment you did. And that would be your half an hour to take a shower, attend to your personal hygiene, or same thing with the afternoon. And your day was scheduled very, very militaristic style. And then nine o'clock, lights would be turned off. And you could not leave and, and have any real personal time. By that time, normally, you would be completely exhausted so that you would be awakened again the following morning at, you know, whatever awful time they set. So, and so it was a very strange experience in the sense that I was extremely exhausted. I lost my appetite, so I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. 
And honestly, I, I would get kind of very grumpy. And well, yeah, I'd be grumpy too. Were they just trying to isolate you from outside influences or help you concentrate on certain things? I think you've touched on a lot of it. But yes, it was meant to be a vigorous course. And what they equated the experience to is it was like a boiling pot. And you wanted to increase the pressure of everything that was going on, your discomfort, your exhaustion, um, so that what would come out would be um, these issues that Hmm. you would have to deal with. Right. And you couldn't bury them anymore. You couldn't repress them. It would just come bubbling to the top. And so you would have these major blowout arguments. You would see it. It didn't happen with me, but I saw major blowout arguments between other students. Oh, wow. You know, students who were about ready to come to blows. Students who would just leave like a thief in the night. They could not take the pressure anymore. Major emotional breakdowns. People just sobbing and just, you know, it was really tough. But what was so weird for me is that on my first retreat, it suddenly occurred to me in the middle of all of this thing is, well, this is what I'm paying for. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, you really paid for this? Yes, I I, I had to laugh and say, I'm paying for this experience. I am paying for this experience to be hungry, to be tired, to be grumpy, to be frustrated with all these weird, funky forms and bows and these (laughs) chants and and it made me laugh. Yeah. And it suddenly made me realize that, you know, part of the whole experience is to literally know that those are all distractions, put them aside, mm-hmm. and focus on really what's important. Hmm. And so I had this burst of euphoria of you know, they can make me feel uncomfortable, I can make myself feel uncomfortable, even physically, you know, uncomfortable, but I'm not going to starve, I'm not going to die. And I mean, I have the luxury of time to sit here with myself Mm -hmm. and enjoy the moment. You know, what else do I have to do? And I really did start enjoying the moment. And I, li- I felt as if literally layers of an onion, layers of myself got peeled off. All the exterior boundaries, persona, whatever defenses I put up for the world just started peeling off. And I allowed myself to be vulnerable. I allowed myself, if some emotional issue came up, I allowed myself to cry. Mm-hmm. I allowed myself to release all these things, and I really found peace in these different retreats. Mm-hmm. And I became very grounded, very relaxed and accepting. And in some ways, I think I, I learned really the whole meaning of unconditional love. And so it turned out to be um, an amazing spiritual experience for me that I realized that, you know, people can make me feel uncomfortable. People can say things that might hurt me. They can physically hurt me, but they can never control my ability to love. They can't tell me that I have to love somebody or have to love something. 
and they can't tell me stop. You know, they have no control over that. And knowing you have control over your ability to love just, I don't know, just opened me up. So it was a good thing overall. It was a very good thing. Okay, good. I'm glad the suffering was worth it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I did these retreats for about nine years and and it would be twice a year. And I started to become more and more dedicated to the practice, even contemplating what it would be to become a dedicated nun. Oh, they have nuns? Yes, nuns and monks and what that would entail. And it doesn't mean you go to a monastery and you don't interact with the world. You still have your private life, but then you would dedicate yourself to the practice and the study of the text. Okay, I guess I've always associated priests and monks with Catholicism, but... Mm -hmm. Well, again, I guess I have heard of Buddhist monks, but I haven't really heard of Buddhist nuns. Mm -hmm. But yes. I wonder which came first. Did the Catholics copy the Buddhist terms or did the Buddhists adopt the Catholic um, terms? I don't know if if that's sort of the closest they could come up with in English translations. But yes, there have always been... I don't know what they, there's another word that they use, like dedicate, dedicate, something, something dedicated ones. And there's like males who are dedicated, females that are dedicated, mm -hmm. adherence, I think adherence, mm -hmm. something, there, there's some kind of title. And I think when um, the practice started spreading to Europe, and especially to the United States, they really didn't know what the equivalent term was, so they just, they changed it to monks and nuns. Okay, and that makes sense. Yeah. It is also interesting that the particular Zen practice that we were practicing under, this particular organization, the majority of its members were former Catholics. Huh, I wonder why. That's interesting. And it's very interesting because this particular practice was very much entrenched in different rituals. Hmm. Yeah, they're really big on these rituals like a dance, more so than any other practice, basically. Okay. And what I've been told is that the one that we understand is the Buddha, Siddhara Shakyamuni, the Buddha that we have come to know from the area of India and Pakistan, the prince who gave up everything and brought the Buddhist principles, that he had a lot of followers who were both women and men, and they all traveled in a group. And then as the organization apparently got bigger and bigger, and they started to split off, there would be groupings of women and there would be groupings of men. Hmm. And okay. then when it went to different countries, and I think it went to China, it either went to China and then to Korea and then to Japan, or it was either China and Korea or Korea and China, but then from one of those directions, it got passed on to Japan. Mm -hmm. And Buddhism has an interesting way of wherever it is practiced, it is incorporated into the local culture. 
Okay. So I know in the beginning, the monks and the nuns would interact together in the same temple. But by the time it went to Japan at some point, then they split up the sexes. Hmm, And the culture is such that it became to the point that if a lone male was in a room with a lone female, it was assumed that they were having sex. Oh, that's okay. That's kind of strange. That was the culture, Um, at least in Japan. And it had nothing to do with religion. It was just the culture. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, they deliberately kept the sexes separated and not a lot of interaction. Mm-hmm. So when our particular teacher came to the United States, he came when he was in his 50s, hmm. and he came to the United States during the sexual revolution in California. <laughs> wow, that must have been a shock. So if he was in his 50s when he came over here, then yes. he was pretty old when you were seeing him. He Yes, he passed away when he was 106, and this was uh, several years ago. But fast forward, I think he became entranced with this, uh, with the sexual revolution and didn't quite know how to teach and what to bring of his Japanese cultural practices versus changing it to fit these crazy American needs. And he had numerous affairs. Oh, wow. Um, He did sexually abuse and exploit some of his female students. And it's even said that some of his students, including um, the ones that were nuns, would procure partners for him. Oh. And he apparently even had the organization, they were making money by this time, provide money for some of these students to have abortions. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, really disappointing. And apparently a lot of this had happened and had come up once in the organization in the 70s where some students said, this is inappropriate. You are abusing your position of authority Mm -hmm. and this shouldn't happen. So there was a little bit of a mass exodus Mm -hmm. of some of his more experienced students. But then a lot of his other experienced students I guess, try to get him to promise that this was not going to happen again. And apparently he would use these um, retreats as time to see how far he could get with some of these female students. And so by the time we were getting to the end of my nine-year practice of actually doing these retreats, you know, we had a serious family discussion about you know, could we continue to practice with this very flawed spiritual leader? So you found out about the abuses that were going on. We found out about it. And then we had to decide as a family what we were going to do. Right. And it became public and an internet blogger did all this incredible research. Mm -hmm. And that just, that became a Me Too movement in and of itself where all these former female students came forth. Mm -hmm. and male students, um, and came forth about all of the women that had been abused and how they were treated and ostracized and harassed. Wow. Well, that's the thing about the Internet. It's a lot harder to hide corrupt behavior. People find out. It was very interesting. He never abused me. 
Thank he goodness. sexually never touched me. Good. And I think part of it was because he was warned by the nuns. And they said, you know, Phyllis is married and she's a lawyer. Right. He wouldn't want to be sued. And she's a criminal prosecutor. And she's married to a lawyer who is also a criminal prosecutor. Mm-hmm. So you you must not touch her. You right. must not do anything because you will get into serious serious trouble Mm -hmm. and I think I'm grateful to whomever warned him because my relationship with him was was as a teacher and a student as it should be Hmm. he treated me very well he treated Richard very well Mm -hmm. and he was kind and he was uh, he was for me at that time a good teacher but finding out that he had abused other students and ones that I knew and was friends with really made us confront, well, how can we learn from a flawed teacher who's supposed to be an enlightened human being? Right. Well, that brings up interesting questions because most people are a mixture of good and bad, and it's just a matter of degree how much good or how much bad. But who do you want as your spiritual leader? How much bad can you accept? You know, so how do you go about making that decision? Well, it was actually through a conversation with our son. And our son said, knowing what we know now, would you introduce anybody to the practice? Would you, you know, because we have, we have brought in friends and to practice at our local Zen center. And we thought about it, Richard and I thought about it. And at first we said, yeah, yeah, we would still introduce our friends to it. But we would tell them that they had to be, you know, be aware that he was a sexual abuser. And, and and the more we try to justify and talk about it, we realize, well, this is ridiculous. We can't, in good faith, introduce somebody to this practice and say, trust in the practice, but don't trust him. Right. Be on your guard. Don't mm-hmm. let your guard down at all. Mm-hmm. Well, if you trust somebody with your soul, with your spiritual, with your spirituality, if you can't trust them with your body, how can you trust them with your spirituality? Well, right, because your soul is even more important than your physical well-being. Yeah. Or at least some would say so. So you, if you can't trust them to be honest and not manipulate you or abuse you in any way, then how can you trust them at all? Exactly. That doesn't sound like much of a leader. Exactly. So at that point, we realized we could no longer practice with him. It turned out to be sort of a non-issue because he started to experience some major health issues right around that time. It's about 104, 105 at the time. Wow. And he was still trying to get it on with these students. Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there was a joke about, you know, he's maintaining his male virility, but it was also very painful, I think, for his followers mm-hmm. because he didn't recognize, I, I mean, again, the idea of Buddhism is you set aside your own ego needs and you concentrate on the needs of others. And if you're worried about your virility, Mm-hmm. and trying to prove yourself and you want to right he's not thinking about them he's imposing his needs on them exactly you impose that on somebody else when you're in a position of authority right you are a very troubled person right it's despicable in my opinion it, it goes against the whole concept of being an enlightened being 
Right. Not enlightened. You know, and, and it shows that you are a very selfish, self-centered person mm-hmm. who is more interested about your own needs rather than your students. Kind of narcissistic in a way. So we, we as a family left our practice. We actually were hoping that others in our center would recognize that he isn't the only teacher and that there are other meditations and teachers out there and that we should have these guest people come in. Oh, good idea. And um, we got a lot of pushback from our sangha, which is our congregation. We were told to basically sit down and shut up, meditate. And that if we couldn't follow the teachings of this particular teacher, then we should leave, vote with our feet. And so we did. Well, good. Yes. I'm glad you did. I just can't believe that anybody else would stay. Why would you stay in a situation like that? Are you so afraid of change that you'll put up with corruption? That's just crazy to me. Yeah. So we actually led the charge of leaving and we were a major steady financial support for the local Zen Center. And there were others that followed our lead who were also providing financial support. And Oh good, you voted with your wallet as well as your feet. Yeah. So they're they're kind of in a mess right now, but long story short very long story and message to be learned is that, yes, it made me, while my experience was mixed again, Mm -hmm. where I think I gained some invaluable experience and teachings from this Zen practice and from this teacher in particular, Mm -hmm. it also made me realize that I had been part of a cult Oh, wow. This is a classic definition of a cult. And it was very bruising to my ego Mm -hmm. to recognize I've been, one, manipulated once again. Yeah. And two, that here I am, I hold myself, my ego self as being an educated, rational person. Mm -hmm. And I let myself and my family be manipulated by a cult. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be devastating and shocking. And I think most people don't realize anybody can be manipulated by these types of organizations or these types of people. They're very clever at what they do. Right. And there's always either money or power involved, oftentimes sex. But let me go find the bite model and read it here and let's check it. Okay. Okay, Stephen Hassan's bite model. So he took all the research that had been done on the different methods that cults use to recruit and maintain control over people, and he put it together in an easy-to-remember acronym, and it's BITE, B-I-T-E. So the first characteristic of a cult is behavior control. Yes, check. Okay, the second one is information control. Check. So somehow they controlled information. They hid They hit our teachers' prior sexual abuse and history. Right. This is a crazy thing. So like the Catholic Church, they seem to believe in this thing called a lineage, a history. Okay. And while this monk did come, our teacher did come from a recognized Rinzai temple in Japan, what we didn't recognize or they suppressed from us or the believers deliberately 
ignored Mm -hmm. was he had a criminal history in Japan involving his temple. So yeah, he was placed in charge of a branch temple. So he was ordained as the abbot of a particular temple. And um, during World War II, money was given um, to the temples Mm -hmm. to rebuild. And he embezzled that, those monies, and went to prostitution houses. What? (laughs) He had apparently an affair (laughs) with a married woman. He at least fathered a child out of wedlock, you know, because these monks weren't allowed to marry Uh or have any interaction with women. Okay. And he was convicted and he ended up serving a prison time for the embezzlement of the money. And so he was stripped of his titles. He was stripped of his authority and brought back to the mother temple and they did not know what to do with him Mm. well these crazy americans wanted a japanese meditation teacher and so they sent him in exile basically to the united states thinking we'll get rid of two birds with one stone we won't be able to rehabilitate him. They're, they're crazy Americans. We don't know what they're going to do with him. And he can go teach and we'll be rid of him and we'll satisfy these crazy Americans. Mm-hmm. And so when he came, he didn't know any English. Wow. And he lived out of a garage of somebody's house forever. And they had small sitting groups. But they had no idea that literally 50 years later, he would have this incredible, financially well-known organization Mm -hmm. and become recognized as a top spiritual leader. So clearly no one bothered to do a background check on him. And it's just amazing that he could go from virtually having nothing to being so successful in such a short time. I know. And I'm sure it surprised him. I'm sure he thought, that's it. I'm going to this crazy place and, and this will be the end of it. My life is over. Little did he know that he would come here, hit the United States when the sexual revolution was going on. Yeah, bonus for him. When you have these crazy Americans who think you are a fully authorized, highly placed religious leader. Mm-hmm. And honestly, they kept building him up and making him become, if you will, the equivalent of a pope or a bishop. Isn't it crazy how humans have this deep need to believe in someone or something greater than themselves and to the point where they will just listen to anybody who is charismatic and tells them something that sounds good to them, that makes sense. Yeah, it's crazy. And then if that person says, you know, only listen to me, everybody else is trying to trick you or deceive you, that they fall for it, that they just jump without thinking. It is literally a leap of faith. It's very much an emotional decision, even though they call it spiritual, because that makes it sound better, I guess. We don't look, we just leap off that cliff and we jump. So how do we avoid making that mistake? Do we not solely rely on our emotion, but we add... Logic. Right. We add logic to that so that we don't get carried away by emotion or what we think is a spiritual prompting or whatever. You're absolutely right. I think we hit a point where either we don't want to think 
or we know that logic and analytical reasoning will not make any sense in this realm. Mm. And so we create this dichotomy, this yes or no type of thing. And instead of using our logic to a certain point, such as doing the background check, you know, is this teacher worthy of teaching us? Right. If we're going to trust this person with our spirituality and our physical body, who is this person? Mm-hmm. You know, does this person have the morality or the skills or the values to handle these situations? And, you know, all they did is they wanted an ordained monk. And so, you know, he, like I said, he came here during the sexual revolution in the 60s. I'm sure he, he you know, here he had women throwing themselves at him. <laughs> Yeah, he must have loved that. He didn't have to even pay for it, right? I mean, I mean, this was so foreign to his culture. Right. So it just must have been such a strange world. And really, it was his students that pushed him and said, okay, we want to do this. We want to put you on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. We want to formalize the practice. We want you to come up with these spiritual, these um, ceremonial rituals. Mm-hmm. We, want to, we want to come up with some robes. And there are stories where he said, no, this is a lay practice. This is a practice for everyday people. You don't need to wear robes. You don't need to know the ceremonies. You just need to meditate. You just Mm -hmm. need to sit and and do it. But they were like, no, we want this. Hmm, That's really interesting. So people have this inner need for the pomp and circumstance of religion, for rituals, for symbolism. It must fill something in them that we desire that, that we follow that, that we use that. I think it gives us a framework Mm -hmm. for the unknown and our faith. Um, It gives us something to hold on to, something to do with our bodies, if you will, to get our bodies into a certain position, a certain state of mind. Then we can let our faith, our spirituality explore. Yeah, I can see that. But I think it provides us a comfort level and maybe an anchor Mm -hmm. so that we can drift and we can explore, but we're still tethered in some way and it gives us security. Wow, that's a great analogy. I like that, that the anchor keeps us secure so that we can explore other ideas and other feelings and grow. But I'm also wondering if at the same time that anger can be used to tie us to the organization to hold us down, to trap us. I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword, depending on how you use it. Yeah, I think it go- I think you're right. I think it goes both ways. I think it can be used in, in um, a selfish way. It can be used in an altruistic way. And I do believe that as humans, we like rituals. Mm-hmm. We, we really, we somehow feel the need to have rituals, patterns of behavior that are familiar to us. Mm-hmm. And maybe it also, you know, I, it occurred to me when I was doing even my first retreat that I recognized what was happening to me. And I recognized that by stressing myself out, 
I was really bringing out some deeply hidden issues. But I also recognize, for example, that when we would go to the sutra hall and we would do these chants, I realized that they were nothing but breathing exercises. Oh. That they help warm our bodies, if you will, our throat chakras, and it got us breathing and pumping air into our body. So it was like a nice wake-up call. You know, you're supposed to chant with your heart and soul. And when you do that, it really, it changes the chemistry within your bodies. Um, so that it, it, it's an exercise. Mm-hmm. It's a breathing, waking exercise. And I saw the value of doing that kind of ritual so that when I was sitting in meditation, cross-legged meditation, I was awake and I was ready to now sit and do my my meditation. It was like I, I had gotten my body primed so I was ready now to do the emotional, spiritual work. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Interesting. So it's more of a holistic attitude towards spirituality, mind and body. Yeah. Good to know. Okay, let me finish off the elements of the bite model. We have thought control. Definitely. And emotional control. Yes. Okay, so I have to admit, I'm sitting here looking at these mechanisms of behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. And I'm thinking that's every parent in America (laughs) and every school system. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think there has to be one other twist. I I agree. I mean, that is the model for, you're right, every belief system, every family system, anybody who's in authority, it's our school system. Mm -hmm. It's um, honestly, that, that applies to every sport. Oh, right. Yeah. Every club, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we could get, we could get really crazy with it, but I think it's, uh, to the matter of degree mm-hmm. of what we're doing. And, um, to me, a cult has this idea that you condition people slowly, gradually to the point that they're controlled by emotions and thoughts and behaviors by the language that's used, Mm -hmm. by the customs and rituals that are used. Mm -hmm. The thoughts are controlled because certain information is fed to people, but not at all. You know, Buddhism is, is really interesting in that, and there are many different flavors of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. There are ones that, honestly look like Christianity, where Buddha is the equivalent of Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. There are some flavors of Buddhism where the priests are intervening on behalf of your soul. And Mm. so there are many different kind of flavors of Buddhism, but this particular Zen practice, they prided themselves of catering to people who were analytical. And who would challenge things, such as you challenge the practice. You work with this principle of unconditional love, and you debate it all the way through. They say, for example, you take some particular teaching, and you pretend it's this hot iron that's red from heat, and you're swallowing it. Oh, and you're fighting it, and you're going with the pain, and you're working with it. 
And so they, they pride themselves on challenging the practices and, you know, does this really work for you? Mm-hmm. But what they don't tell you is that if you work on it long enough, you can make it. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, if you tell yourself something long enough, you start to believe it. It becomes a mental habit. Well, it's not only a mental habit, but you can also then convince yourself of the answer that this is the only way. Right. You know, that this is this is it. This is this is the only way. This is the true way to find enlightenment, peace and happiness. There is no other way. It becomes absolute. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when it may become dangerous. Yes. And also when people have invested so many years in these organizations, and maybe that's all they've ever known, it's hard to change and it's hard to lose their investment. That is exactly what makes, I think, certain cults exist and how it's perpetuated is because you have members that have invested so much time, so much energy, so much financial resources. Right so much of everything. Maybe they've changed their entire life. They've shaved their head. They wear these robes and they've given up all of their livelihood possessions. They've donated it. Yeah. And they're they're following the teacher from place to place. Mm-hmm. And if you say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm wrong. This isn't the path for me. Mm-hmm. You know, then I've wasted 12 years of my life. <laughs> or more. Or more, you know, and Yeah, Yeah. it's got to be extremely difficult because that is the way of life that you knew for so long. All your family, friends, maybe are still in that lifestyle. And so what do you do? Where do you go? It's like having to be reborn. Mm -hmm. It's like starting all over again. Yes. So I can see where that would leave people in a very fragile state of mind, even if they are strong enough to choose to get out. So maybe they might need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist. Unless unless it's my mother. (laughs) Yeah, unless it's your mother. (laughs) Good one. So that reminds me of a point that article brought up. And that is that victims of child sexual abuse are more likely to be re-abused later in life. And so do you feel like you were able to escape that trend, maybe because of your law profession or your husband who you married, or or do you think you escaped that? Um, yes and no. It was interesting. I think, um, yes, definitely who I married, my profession and recognizing that there was an issue and a problem, so I had to work on it. Mm-hmm. And going into years of counseling and trying different therapies and continuing that definitely helped. Mm-hmm. Right. I understand what happens when one has been sexually abused as a child and victimized, develop their role as a victim. And if they don't recognize it and they don't heal from that, how they can be re-victimized because abusers pick up on this. It's like a dog that can smell fear, kind of. They recognize victims of prior abuse and they understand that they can manipulate this victim again. And so while I did work on not remaining a sexual victim again, I still was vulnerable to other types of manipulation. Right. And part of that, I recognize, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think 
the Zen meditation practice that I did for many years helped me overcome a lot of the sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I still was vulnerable to other forms of manipulation and control. And then recognizing that I was essentially part of a cult helped me continue to divorce myself of others' ability to manipulate me. But life is just really interesting in that towards the end of my career, I realized I kept getting subjected to some horrible supervisors who were just as manipulative as my mother. And it really triggered some workplace issues for me. It was hard. It was really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I literally had to hire an attorney to represent me to say, knock it off. This is inappropriate. I'm standing up for myself and I'm not going to be manipulated by you again. And what you're doing is improper work practices. Oh, good. But did it work? Yes. Oh, good. I'm glad that it worked for you and that you were assertive enough to stand up for yourself in the workplace. So how do you explain that these types of experiences keep coming to you? Do you think the universe is trying to teach you a lesson or what do you think? Absolutely. I have a hard head. I recognize it. I recognize that I have to be hit over the head time and time again uh, for me to wake up and recognize the lesson to be learned. I can't speak to other people's experiences. I think it is a much harder place to work, not only in state government, but in all forms. Um, It's a very different workplace. Right, because government organizations kind of take on a life of their own too, you know, and have their own set of healthy and unhealthy practices. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, and it's been really fascinating. So any final words of wisdom? I think I've exhausted my my sources of wisdom for today. (laughs) Your sources of wisdom have dried up. (laughs) I think I I have to, if your future interviewees have to move to an island of isolation with no dog, (laughs) doorbells. I know. You haven't exhausted your words of wisdom. You've just exhausted yourself, I think, is what you're telling me, what you're telling me right now. Okay. (laughs) I can take a hint. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, again, I appreciate your time and and you sharing your story with us. So Yes. Thank you. And I'm sure our listeners will also. (laughs) And with that, I'll wrap it up. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Utah Podcast. We hope you'll join us again. And by the way, we would love to have you as our guest on Utah Podcast. If you would like to tell your story in a full-length episode, please email us at utahpodcast at gmail.com. We also welcome your thoughts about this episode and any experiences you might like to share with our listeners. Just Skype an audio message to our username, utahpodcast at gmail.com. Please use a good USB mic if possible. Thanks. Can't wait to hear from you.